Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today we've got another very special guest, Mark Bernardin, writer of Things That Go Boom, co-host of Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman, Castle Rock writer, occasional journalist, dazzling urbanite, lightweight, famous. I always like to read the Twitter bios of my (laughs) guests because isn't there some writing involved in that? Isn't that a process in itself? It is very much like, all right, I got to write to space. How many characters do I have? How much can I squeeze in there? Uh, revisions, rewriting, edits, <laughs> all of it. Oh, definitely. You, you have to write an outline that's longer than your profile just to get like <laughs> to get it down. Um, so tell us um, where you are in the world right now. Um, right now, I'm in Los Angeles. Um, I'm in my car, pulled off into a side street. I found some shade because it is like 100 degrees already in, wow. uh, in the San Fernando Valley. Um, so yeah, I'm on my way actually into town to record an episode of Fat Man on Batman. Awesome. But I figured I could... Uh, pull over and chat a little bit this is a good warm-up absolutely yeah i gotta get the gotta get the pipes warm it definitely brain limber it definitely helps to like kind of get it you know like you said like get the energy up that kind of thing <laughs> um so let's i guess start i was thinking we could just go linear from like you know i was joking about your your twitter bio but you know maybe we could kick off based on what you've written out there so starting with fat man on batman so i mean obviously our fans are going to know for those who don't, you want to tell us a little bit about what Fat Man on Batman is and what your role is there? And who who are you, the Fat Man or the Batman? Are you both? Or... <laughs> um, well, Fat Man on Batman was a podcast that Kevin started, I want to say, about five or six years ago, um, with the express purpose of Batman being his favorite character in the world, talking to people who had some connection, um, either spiritual or tangential or direct to the character. You know, it had been mostly, you know, creators and comic book people and the voice actors from the from the cartoon and, you know, just people out in the world who had an affinity for the character and experience with the character. And so, and that was his thing. It was like, come to my house. I've got a podcast studio. We'll talk about Batman for an hour and a half and then use that to talk about other, you know, sort of avenues of conversation, other right. stories about people and their stories and their lives and so forth and so on. Um and I had been friendly with him um, back from when I worked at Entertainment Weekly. I'd interviewed him a couple of times, and we both kind of hit it off because we're nerds. <laughs> we think along the same nerve wavelengths. And I think he realized something of a, of a kindred spirit. You know, and I was living in Jersey. He's from Jersey. And, you know, he would come back all the time. We'd, like, play poker and hang out. And, uh, and so when I was in L.A., he said, hey, listen, I got this podcast about Batman think of Batman stuff to talk about and we'll do a podcast. I said, all right, that's cool. And then like half an hour later, oh no, wait, let's do a commentary track for this new um, Warner Brothers animated Batman movie, this Dark Knight Returns part one. I said, sure, I can watch that and we can talk about Batman for an hour and a half. That's easy. And it's not quite as easy as I, as I thought it would be, but it was still, you know, we watch a movie, we'll do a commentary track for this movie. We will just kind of shoot the breeze and have a good time. So hey, that was fun. Let's do it again. So part two had come out, and so we got together and we did it again. So that was fun. <laughs> Let's do commentary tracks for all the Batman movies. So we started with Tim Burton, and we went all the way through the end of the Schumacher run. He said, hey, man, that was fun. Let's do Gotham. And so we started watching Gotham as commentary track. We got like three episodes in and said, okay, Gotham's not that great. But there was a segment of the show that it was always like we could open up with like the utility belt. We just talk about nerd stuff, and here's stuff that's in the news. Here's movies we've seen. Here's you know trade breaks that would come in Variety or Hollywood Reporter or Deadline. 
involving nerd properties and just offering some perspective on that stuff. Because even before I was a writer of things that go boom, I was a journalist for about 20, 25 years working for Entertainment Weekly and Hollywood Reporter and the LA Times. So it was, okay, I know a lot about a lot. I know a little about a little. Let's just talk about this stuff. And then it eventually just began being that thing. It started just being, hey, you know what's kind of fun? Let's talk about nerd stuff a lot. And that's kind of what the podcast changed into. Hell yeah. And it's not just a podcast. It's also a video. Yeah. I mean, it, it first, it started as audio and then Kev was like, hey, what if we, you mind if we put some cameras up in here? It's like, hey man, it's your house, whatever you want. And then he's like, hey, this is fun. Do you mind if we uh, get some studio space? Let's go do it in a studio. I was like, yeah, sure, man. That sounds cool. And then it was, hey, um, there's a bar that our producer right. owns called Scum and Villainy. What if we just did it Which, there? By the, live? by the way, is an amazing name for a bar, by the way. It's so it's good. It's pretty great. So good. It's coming to Villainy Cantina. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so then it's, all right, every every Tuesday, if Kev's in town and I'm in town, and like, let's do it on the regular in front of a crowd of 60 or 70 people. And that's that's the format that it's been for the last year, year and a half or so. And it's super fun. It's super great to, to A, be able to just talk with Kev about the stuff that I would talk with him about, like, we go see a movie, we'd hang on the parking lot for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, two hours, talking about whatever. We just now yeah. do it in front of other people. And people love it, for sure. Yeah. You know, the crowd, <laughs> and, and the crowd vibe is actually, you know, a big part of what makes it work. You know, we went on the road for a little bit, you know, and we, we went around the country, a couple of international dates, and being able to do the live Q&A with people and getting them to ask us stuff that we hadn't planned on and hadn't prepared for um, adds this level of energy to the show that I think was sort of missing beforehand. And now it's an, an integral part of the show. And I kind of love it. You guys should, uh, there's a bar near me in Bushwick called uh, Gotham City Lounge. Have you heard of it in Bushwick in uh, New no, York City? Yeah, that would be a cool one. It is tiny. So if you ever do a, uh, <laughs> a show in there, you literally will only uh, be able to get like 10 guests in there. But um, <laughs> So I was actually just watching the most recent episode, which is Solo Deadpool, Deadpool 2. As of this recording, that's the most recent, right? Right, yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, and obviously you guys were talking about Solo. And you made a very interesting point. You said, we know exactly what young Harrison Ford looked like. Also, we knew what he looked like as young Han Solo. So it's <laughs> such an interesting point. And spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it. You also were both talking about how that film just in general was just about checking off all the boxes for fan service, that kind of thing. Um, Kessel Run, not even talking about speed. Um, yeah. For you as a as a Star Wars fan, I know you're into it though, right? You're pretty much happy. I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, you know, Star Wars is is a foundational part of my of my identity, of my history. You know, it's the it's the very first memory that I can trace back as a real thing is of being in a movie theater watching Star Wars and watching a, a Star Destroyer scream over my head and seeing the crawl and and like that's part in a big way of who I am. And so, you know, my relationship to Star Wars has evolved over the years. I mean, it comes and it goes, and especially given that there was a decade-long stretch between Star Wars movies when all you had was novels and comic books and stuff, like, you know, your relationship would have to change with something that was that big of a part of your youth. And looking at fandom the way it is today, looking at these movies the way they are today, it is somewhat fascinating to see these, like, divisions, these series, yeah. almost like, you know, like, moat-style separations between, you know, people who love a thing and people who hate a thing that they used to love and the reasons why they hate or love the thing, um, which are reasons that never seemed to bother anybody before. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, well, this movie was not very well written. 
it's like, well, yeah, okay. (laughs) Return of the Jedi isn't that well written, but well, and also like, look at like Last Jedi, right? What about the prequels? No, I mean, people were upset, but no one was that angry back then. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this weird like suddenly the fact that we are getting so much Star Wars, suddenly the fact that we are getting the dream that was once you know withheld from us seems to have given people, um, some people, I have to be very cautious in saying some and not mm-hmm. all, because there is a very big difference. For sure. Um, you know, a sense of ownership and entitlement that they hadn't previously had that has replaced what was just gratitude, which is like, look, we got more. Right, happy. exactly. And now it's, we have more, and I'm not happy. And I'm not happy for reasons that I can't quite articulate <laughs> beyond to say that this isn't good. Right. I mean, it's probably as good as the last things. It's just different, and I don't want it to be different. I want it to be the same. And, you know, I love this donut. I've been eating this donut for like 40 years, and suddenly there's a different donut. It's still a donut, which is a universal good thing. It's just different than the other donuts. This is a different donut, and I'm mad. Definitely. And it's funny. I actually was just reading some Star Wars news articles um on flipboard and one of the articles actually referenced you in this like commentary because it's such a hot topic right now this whole like you know light side dark side i guess you could say (laughs) and uh they referenced you as kind of like sticking up for like hey like there's no reason to like bring it to like that level to the point where some you know an actor is getting off social media because of people trolling you know yeah you know like i wrote this piece for the hollywood reporter which was just looking at the the fact that fandom is by its very nature an us versus them proposition. You know, it's these are the people who I can recognize love the same thing that I love in the same way that I love it, and those who don't is a them. And for a long time, it was just, you know, there's there's a bunch of people in a, in a ballroom basement at a hotel, and we're like, we're going to have a convention. There's 100 people here because we all love Star Trek, and that's great. Because the mainstream was the them, and that's okay. Like, we love it, you don't, we get it, and it's a club that's for us, and we all love a thing. But when something that was once niche becomes mainstream, there still needs to be a them, you know, because it's still fandom. And so that's when fandom begins to turn in on itself and then decide that some people in this fandom aren't true fans, and some are, and some belong and some don't. And those lines can be somewhat arbitrary and occasionally, you know, divisive and wounding and insulting and offensive. And realizing that and taking a look at that um, seems to have prodded some people on in the world the wrong way. <laughs> Definitely, that's a good way of saying it. Um, I'm curious to see what happens with uh, the new Ryan Johnson series and how kind of that goes over. That's going to be an interesting, interesting it times. Will be. Yeah, um, it will be cool. So let's go back to the talking about your podcast. And this, you know, obviously this show's about the writing process. When you and Kevin go into that show, like right now you're about to go record an episode, right? Do you know, do you have an outline ready? Do you have a, a topic? Um, well, I think that the way that works for us the best is uh, Kevin has no idea what we're going to talk about unless he has uh, a thing that he's like, yeah, we should hit this because this is huge. Like they're making a Joker movie with Jared Leto and they're giving it the green light. We, he, we have to talk about that because it's a Batman podcast. It's in the title. But beyond that, you know, we'll get together for about 15 minutes before the show and we'll say, hey, so do we have any any sort of pregame material? Like, what have we been up to? Can you talk about it? Um, great. We'll save that for the open. And then I've got a list like four pages long of news stories that I called together over the course of a week. And then, but he doesn't want to know what those are. Interesting. He just wants to sort of take it, 
you know, kind of fresh and new and get some instant reaction to it. And then, you know, we'll talk about those and then it'll be Q&A. And that's, you know, the, the format for the show is pretty set. Um, but the chunks within those formats um, are evolving uh, sometimes up to the minute. That's crazy. I, I like the in the moment process there. Um, so you're more of like the writer type. I mean, he's a writer, obviously, but he's more of like, let's do this in the moment and get the, like the organicness of it. Yeah. Like I bring the research. Mm -hmm. I bring the like, I will do kind of the internet skullduggery and dig out the stuff that I think seems interesting and then, you know, bring it to the table and then we'll say, all right, here's kind of what we're going to talk about. It's great. Let's go. So you record at a bar. Do you have a beer when you're doing this or? Uh, it all depends. <laughs> um, it all depends. Like there's definitely water, but uh, there is occasionally a beer. All right. All right. Um, yeah. So let's talk Castle Rock. So as we move along through your Twitter bio, uh, mm -hmm. let's talk Castle Rock. So Castle Rock premieres July 25th on Hulu. It's based on yep. stories um, of Stephen King. And I'm going to quote something I found earlier. The series will intertwine characters and themes from the fictional town of Castle Rock. Um, tell us about the show, your involvement, how you got involved in that, what, what you can talk about, what you can't talk about. Right. Yeah. The what I can't talk about is a much longer list of what I can talk about, <laughs> okay. um, given that it's a it's a J.J. Abrams production. It's a bad robot yeah. joint. And so the, the NDAs are severe and draconian. Um, I can imagine. So I can't say much. But what I can say is that it's it's less like the Avengers in the you're not going to see like, hey, hey here's Pennywise and Annie Wilkes and Jack Torrance and Cujo all walking down the street together to go fight some other people. <laughs> it's more like, what if there was a lost Stephen King book? What would it feel like? Interesting. You know, um, it's especially a book that was set in Castle Rock, which he set a couple of stories in, a couple of cycles in. You know, it's a song in the key of King more than it is like a cover of anything else. So, and doing that, making that kind of show was an exercise in figuring out what makes Stephen King tick. Like, what is it about his work that people respond to? What is it about those characters and those and that world and that entire sort of Kingian genre that makes people sort of respond to it? And then figuring out a way how to synthesize that. And, and that process took about um, 40 weeks. <laughs> wow. How did you get into that role? Did they reach out to you or uh, like, how does something like that even come about? Um, uh, a friend of a friend, um, you know, sort of gave me a call and said, Hey, listen, they're making a show that's like this. Um, I know you have an affinity for genre. I know you have an affinity for Stephen King. Um, do you want me to put your name in a hat? And I said, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> Uh, and so the name went in the hat along with a writing sample, and then they reached out through my representation and said, hey, can we set a meeting and can we you know, talk for about an hour and see where, where my brain was at regarding Stephen King and my sort of experience? And I also came to it not as a, as a horror person. Like as much as I am a genre person and I have an understanding of what makes horror tick, I am not like the deep dive, you know, despite the fact that I worked at Fangoria for a few years. I am not your traditional Fangoria right. reader. Okay. So, uh, so like, but but genre has its rules, and horror has its conventions. And understanding what makes those things tick was something that I think that the showrunners were were very much um, looking to add to the room that they were putting together. And so we got along, as they say, famously. And then they offered me the gig as a staff writer on the show. Did it feel like an interview when you go into a process like that, where you like get your suit on and you drive up to the lot and like, you know what I mean? It's the same feeling as someone going to interview at any job or? I mean, it's a weird sort of feeling because nobody, nobody wants to feel as if it's an interview. 
you know, like I'm definitely not wearing yeah. a suit because I think if I if I showed up in a suit, they would automatically just bounce me from the room. It's like, what? No, you're the wrong person. Nobody wears a suit, right? Um, you know, but it's definitely clear they have a job to offer, and I want that job. But the path to getting that job is more. Let me show you why. Like you've read my work, so you know that I can write, and otherwise you wouldn't have set the meeting. So that's not what this is about. This is about what are you like as a person. This is about how can I. How can I choose the 10 people who I'm going to spend sort of locked in a room for eight hours a day? How do I decide within an hour that you're the kind of person that I can do that with? You know, it's more, it's more the, the void conf test than anything else. Right. Let's see if you're a human. Let's see if, let's see if you can hold a conversation. Let's see if you have a sense of humor. Let's see, right. you know, if you, if you have the sensibility that we think we can tolerate for an extended amount of concentrated time. And you pass so the test. Yeah, you know, it's it's a conversation, really. Um, it's a little bit of like a tell me where you where you're from, tell me who you are, and the version of your story that you choose to tell them is what they're judging you by. And it's it's hard to tell if you passed or failed the test in the room. It's always hard to like, oh, um, I think I did okay. Um, <laughs> you know, they never seemed bored. Um, but you don't know right. if it's checking off the boxes that they have because you just don't know what those boxes are. And once you dig it hard, was is that for like a specific number of shows, or is it for all shows, or how does that work? Um, it all depends on the level that you're coming into a room at. You know, um, most of the time you're hired for a number of weeks because they measure the duration of the show by weeks. So it's like you get a twenty week contract, contract a thirty week contract, a forty week contract, a run of the show contract. Um, at higher levels, at you know, supervising producer, co executive producer, executive producer, you're paid. Um, per episode, however long it might take you to make an episode is, is however long, you know, like it took us 20 weeks to make one episode. Like, well, that's not good as opposed to it took us two weeks to make one episode, in which case that's great. Right. But it, it's freelance. Ultimately, it's a term gig. And what does it feel like being credited alongside Stephen K? Um, well, I can't tell you for sure because I haven't yet had the experience of watching the episode that my name is on right. uh, in the litany of credits, you know, um, that that is still an experience that is in the horizon as opposed to the rear view. But it is a little, it's a little bizarre. I can imagine. And are you actively like promoting that? Is that, do they ask you to, you know, go out and, and talk about it? For a writer at my level on this show, I am not expected in any way to participate in their promotional <laughs> schemes right um they don't mind mm-hmm. if i decide to talk about stuff they're they're totally happy for me to to say like hey listen i did this show i hope you like it cool but yeah it, it's not like hey we're going on tour pack up your bags we're going to be in barcelona on thursday it's not uh is not part of my i'm not on their press junket <laughs> Um, cool. So let's talk about, let's like dial it back or rewind to writing comic books. You've written a lot of comic books, you know, for those who maybe don't know, like tell us a little bit about it, how you got into it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've done some work for both Marvel and DC, um, done some work for image and IDW and a couple of other indie publishers, but I got into it because I'm a comic nerd. You know, I had been reading comics since I was like nine or 10, and uh, sort of fell in love with the X-Men and Spider-Man and eventually got onto DC and Batman and Superman and Justice League stuff. But yeah, ever since I was a kid, that was sort of part of my mythology was like Greek heroes and superheroes. Um, and they, they share more than meets the eye 
I think at least to most. Um, and it had always been sort of part of my life, even as a teenager, like I still kind of kept it going, even though it was on the back burner while, you know, the, the crappy paying jobs you get just out of college can't quite support both food and comic books. So one must make a choice and I chose food. Um, but when I got to Entertainment Weekly as a, as a young editor, um, it was the mid nineties and like comic book stuff was starting to bubble, but not in a really big way. It wasn't until X-Men came out and Blade that you could begin to say, Hey guys, I think, you know, something's happening. And then Spider-Man came out in, uh, in 2001 and made so much money that I could then go to my bosses at AW and say, Hey, listen, um, everybody's watching this stuff. Everybody's involved. Everybody's on board with sort of comic book material. What if we covered comics in a really big way? What if we did a weekly section devoted to comics? What if we just put it, made it part of the fabric of the magazine? And they said, okay, sure, we'll give it a go. Which means that I got to go to Comic-Con for the first time. Um, nice. And I got, I got to meet you know, publishers and editors and artists and writers and you know, people that I've been reading for years, people who were just on the cutting edge and trying to break in and, and delivering their first works and, and getting to champion the stuff that I responded to and, and getting to, to understand how it works from the inside. And all these people that I would meet, some of them would say to me, hey, listen, like you're a halfway decent writer. You ever think about comics? And I'd say yes. And then they say, okay, well, what do you got? And so I'd pitch them ideas, and some would say, no, that's dumb. And some would say, you know what, let's make a comic book. And that's kind of what happened. And, you know, I, you know we did a book. Uh, I, have a, I have a writing partner that I work on, on some of the comic book stuff with, a guy named Adam Freeman. And so we did a book for this small publisher called AIT Planet Law called Monster Attack Network, which was an original graphic novel about kaiju and uh, paradise. We did another book for Wildstorm called The Highwaymen, which led to another book from Wildstorm called Push, uh, based on the Chris Evans movie, not the novel by Sapphire. And then uh, that led to getting a shot to write The Authority for Wildstorm, which is their sort of franchise superhero team, which then led to some Marvel work, got to write some X-Men stuff, got to write a Wolverine story, got to write a Spider-Man story, um, all of which, you know, and it was never the job. It was always the thing that we did because it was fun. It was the thing we did because we loved comics. So, you know, our output was never like monstrously high in the same way that, you know, guys who were writing three and four and five monthly books were. But, you know, we got to tell some stories that we loved. We got to, to play with some characters we've, we've loved since kids. We've got to put some original work out into the world. And, uh, and there's a ton of fun to be had there. So for one of your comics, uh, Genius, there's a origin story I heard about of how that comic came to be. And it had something to do with your wife falling asleep to the History Channel. Do you want to tell, you tell that story? Yeah. My wife doesn't like the sort of dead silence of nightfall. Um, so she would always leave the TV on. She just loves like the 10, 15 minutes of falling asleep and the, the weird monotony of documentary that was on like the History Channel and the Science Channel and, and that sort of thing. And it was this one documentary that was about uh, militias and sort of what goes on. Let's go inside the militias. And this, they were interviewing this guy and, and they were out in the middle of like the Appalachians and they were doing rifle target practice up there. And the interviewer said, well, why are you up here? Why are you guys drilling? What are you guys preparing for? And this guy said, well, there's going to be a race war, clearly. Um, and, uh, and so we want to be ready because, you know, if we're going to go to war with, you know, people in the inner cities, they've already been under fire. They've already been bloodied in combat. They're not afraid to pull triggers. They've already killed people. And we have it. And so we have to get ready. And that was fascinating to me. The idea that, 
you know, life in the inner city, life as the member of a gang, life under fire prepares you for something that most people aren't prepared for. And it's the same kind of sort of mental intellectual training that you undergo, you know, when you're in basic, you know, when you're being trained as a soldier, you know, now if somebody could harness that experience and that level of commitment, it would be somewhat fearsome to look at. Right. And then the conversation also twisted into, because Adam is in love with prodigies. Adam has always been fixated by, you know, the, the Bobby Fishers and the Mozarts and the children who can achieve at an adult level far surpassing both anybody else with their peers in their years, but also most adults, period. You know, and then and and prodigies on that level, like true prodigies are almost always in math or music. Um, because those are things that do not require context to excel at. Um and, you know, chess also strategy and and ends up being more logic based math than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um and so, okay, now what if there was a prodigy who was born in a place that creates warriors that nobody has previously tried to field as a, as a military force. And then all of these things just start to coalesce. And then we came up with the idea of genius, which was, you know, what if there's a 16 year old girl born in South central, who's a military genius on the same scale and par of, of Hannibal, of Napoleon, of Rommel, of Schwarzkopf and decided to unite the warring gangs of LA into a incredibly sophisticated crack military force to declare war. And that, that in a nutshell is what genius is, is about. Um, and following the sort of history and the life and the, the, what it takes to do something that nobody else has done before, what it takes to be a monster in a world that might need a monster. Um, you know, what it takes to realize that you're the villain of your story but to embrace it anyway, because it, that is what is required of you, you know. And it, it's been a very interesting ride with this book. You know, we did one miniseries called uh, Genius uh, Siege, and then we got greenlit to do a second one, which is Genius Cartel, which just came out earlier this year uh, in trade paperback. And we've got a green light to do a third, which we're currently, you know, building and outlining now. And you know, we could not have imagined that this would have been uh, a sort of multi-year commitment to this book. You know, it was one idea. But, you know, we believe in, 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 in leaving a back door to get back in. It's like, all right, well, we want to tell a complete story because we're very committed to the idea that if you come to sort of any piece of, of fiction, any piece of narrative that you should be able to, like Stan Lee always used to say, every comic book is somebody's first and potentially somebody's last. And so there should be the version of the complete experience in it. And so to get to extend this complete experience a couple of times, it's been, it's been a real thrill. It's crazy to hear the story from inception to completion, uh, as you just described. Are you the type of person that whenever you're, uh, when you're at a bar or at work, are you always taking little pieces and, and, and crafting stories in your mind? Are you, you, is your head full of stories that are blossoming daily or are you not you know, doing that? Like yeah. it, it, it all depends. You know, there, there are more fertile periods than others, and, and I can't ever really control when that happens, except for... If it's my job, <laughs> right? Then you have to. Yeah, like you know, writer's block is simply, um, you know, for me at any rate, it's if there's a deadline to hit, if there's a mortgage payment that needs to get paid, and if I'm a writer, then you have to write. And you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Now there are things that you know, like seeds of ideas that get just jotted down and put in the file cabinet um, because like I don't have the rest of this. I just have this thing, or I have this character, or I have this scene, or I have this title. And I don't know what to do with it yet, so I'll just sort of file it away and let it 
do its own work and then I'll come back to it when it's when it's ready. Um, but then there are things where it's, you know what? All right, it's got to get done. I got to write an episode of this thing. Great. Got to write an issue of that thing. Okay, we'll figure it out. Um, you know, and some of that is, is experience and some of that is, is blind, stupid confidence, but, <laughs> right. but yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's living a bit, you know, it's being out in the world. It's opening yourself up to the totality of the world around you and allowing that stuff to strike you in ways that you'll have no idea what it will be used for, useful for later. Like, all right, so I'm going to go, you know, to this town in the middle of nowhere, you know, because we do conventions kind of all over the place. It's like, hey, do you want to go to Prince George, Canada, British Columbia and do a show? Sure. I've never been there. Right. I would never have gone there if somebody hadn't said, we'll fly you up there to do a podcast. That's awesome. I'm sorry? So you've talked about journalism. You've talked about writing TV shows, comic books, all this. What would you say are the key differences between those different styles from a writing perspective? Well, I mean, I think, you know, for me, for my money, comics is the hardest of the three to write um, because it is it is taking all of these disciplines like it's not quite screenplay, even though you're writing dialogue and, and setting the pace for action, because what you're doing in a comic book is you're describing still pictures. You're, you're capturing moments in time, you know, like it is impossible in a comic book to write um, panel one. He walks across the room and opens the door. You just can't do that in a comic book right? because it is a picture. It's a still frame. So it's, you're deciding what a book full of still frames are, you know, in consultation and collaboration with an artist and an editor, but you're still, you're deciding how to freeze time, which is a difficult thing to get in your mind. And it's how many panels are on a page, how many word balloons are in a panel, how many words are in each balloon. It's, it's a weird discipline that takes the, that i've seen break <laughs> the right. spirits and minds of other people who've never done it before because doing it for the first time is uh is is nut crushingly hard um you know television is about emotion it's about character it's about um you know making it so that you know, the world can be super interesting and the plot can be whatever the plot's going to be but the reason why we tune in episode after episode is because i want to see what happens next to this person that i have a, an interest in you know, not that it's got to be a good guy. It could be a bad guy. It could be an awful person. But, you know, it's figuring out ways to make that character the most magnetic person you've ever seen before over and over and over again. And journalism for me, I mean, the kind of journalism that I do, I mean, I'm at best an entertainment journalist, which is, you know, journalist in quotes. <laughs> um, but it is, and to be fair, there have been times when I've covered real stories as a journalist, when I've covered things like, you know, Oscar so white and, and the beginnings of the Me Too movement and, you know, actual deaths of people in tragedy and, and that sort of thing. Like that's that qualifies as real journalism. But otherwise what you're doing is you're either it's persuasive. It's let me tell you why you should watch this movie or read this comic book or sit through this T V show or why you shouldn't. You know, it's figuring out a way to make a case and support that case, um, with analysis and with opinion and with perspective. But, you know, and so those are all different things, but they all do, after a fashion, form one another. You know, how do I persuade you to stick around for another episode of this TV show? Well, I persuade you through character. And how do I decide what story I'm telling you? It's like, well, this, I think, is the most interesting version, the most interesting slice of a, the narrative of a character. Like, this, this moment in time is the moment where you should be paying attention to Tony Soprano. Because these three years of his 50-year life are the most interesting. You know, I think that it's all, at least for me, this sort of movable feast of one is informing the other, informing the other, informing the other, and all 
there's certain things to be taken, disciplines to be taken from each form of writing that for me kind of coalesce into a whole. Awesome. Um, are you okay with me asking what I'll uh, call a series of seemingly random questions? Um, totally. Okay, cool. Uh, random question number one. I heard that you interned on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And, I did. And you true. won it. And you won it. Is that, is that as true as well? Um, I, I entered a screenwriting <laughs> competition that was only for college students. Um, and I won the competition. And the prize was, we will send you to Los Angeles to intern for uh, two weeks on Brooklyn Bridge, which was a show that was produced by Ubu Productions from Family Ties fame, and another show to be determined. And it just so happened that the dude who ran Ubu Productions, Gary David Goldberg, was like college buddies maybe with um, Rick Berman, who was the EP on like every Star Trek show um, post the classic show. And, uh, and so Gary called Rick and said, I got this kid. He wrote a Star Trek spec to win this contest. Can you use an intern? And he said, is he free? He's like, yeah, he's free. Fine. <laughs> Tell him where to go. And so I then spent about a month, almost a month and a half on Deep Space Nine between my junior and senior years of college. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> um, cool. Second uh, seemingly random question. What does a lightweight famous mean? Um, it means, it's funny, a friend of mine coined that term at a, at a Comic-Con. Like after, after Fat Man on Batman became a thing, it was, I told her it was locationally famous. Like, in very select places, i.e. San Diego Comic-Con, people will recognize me when I walk down the street because I'm in this place at this time. And it's a target-rich environment, and I get it. I'm <laughs> not the kind of famous that, like, if I'm walking through an airport, nobody gives a crap if I'm walking through an airport. When I walk through an airport with Kevin, there's a dozen people on the way right. from like, gate to curb who will want to stop them and say, hey, man, I love your movies. Can I take a picture? And he will like graciously you know, talk to everybody and take a picture with everybody. I'm not that guy. He's heavyweight famous. I am lightweight famous. There it is. Is lightweight famous better than heavyweight famous or vice versa? Um, I couldn't tell you what the totality of heavyweight famous feels like. Um, you know, I am sure that you know, Brad Pitt gets stuff sent to him for free that I would have to pay a year's salary to get. <laughs> so that's probably good. But, you know, Brad Pitt's kids have a far more difficult time in the world, I'd imagine, um, as far as privacy and invasion goes, right. than mine do. So I am sure there's a trade-off, and I'm sure that they would claim, you know, stay lightweight as long as you can <laughs> if you still get to do what you love. Um, right, you've got you the, know, the best of both worlds. Right, theoretically. theoretically. I, get, I, get the, I get the tiny little free stuff, <laughs> as opposed to, would you like a Tesla? <laughs> sure, I'd love a Tesla. Definitely. Um, I've heard that you once sat in Captain Kirk's chair once. I did, yes. And you're very proud of this. Uh, I am, because, you know, who gets to do that? But when I was, when I was interning on Star Trek in that college, um, in, that co in between my junior and senior years, I was, on, I was there while they were shooting. The Relics episode of The Next Generation, which was, if you're not familiar, when James Doohan showed up uh, to cameo to guest star on The Next Generation as a transporter accident. He gets summoned back to the 25th century, whatever it is. And so for that episode, they had built, um, you know, poor Scotty was homesick for the past that he can never go back and visit. They built the bridge of the, of the Enterprise 1701. No bloody A, no bloody B, no bloody C. Like they built like a third of that original bridge so that he could sit there and, and reminisce in the days gone by. 
And so touring the set on my like second to last day there, I spotted that original, like, we built it. Here it is. We're not using it anymore. We're about to break it down and send it into mothballs. But there was Captain Kirk's chair, screen used from the next generation. And so I sat, I was all up in it. Who would win in a fight, Kirk or Picard? Um, oh, I think Kirk. Yeah? He's more scrappy? I think, I think yeah. I think it, it, it comes down to will. I think it comes <laughs> down to, you know, like, like if I'm going to be in a bar fight with either of those dudes, I kind of want Kirk. Interesting. Next question. Would you ever, now obviously you have a podcast about Batman, would you ever write a Batman comic or a Batman movie? Um, would I? Sure. Uh, I don't have a burning desire to write a Batman comic book only because, you know, there have been so many, like, finding the new Batman story that hasn't been told before, I feel like would be a, a, an impossible task. Now, of course, people do it all the time. But, you know, I, do, I don't have a burning desire to tell a Batman story in comic book form. Now, if somebody came to me and said, hey, we're Warner Brothers. We want to make a Batman movie. Do you have a story that of all of the ones that have been told that you'd like to tell? Absolutely. Like, I can for sure, you know, like pick and choose and say, hey, you know what? Let's take a look at that one. Um, let's find a way into this one. I'm pretty sure if we add this one to this one, the result would be something kind of interesting and unique. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely that version of it that I could be interested in doing. But, you know, on a monthly basis, trying to find, you know, the new story that has been told in 80 years um, seems uh, impossible. But, uh, but maybe I'm just not. I'm just not that guy. <laughs> what about Star Wars? Is there a burning desire to someday be have a writing credit on the next, you know, next trilogy or you know, like I think I think that there's a really interesting Star Wars TV show to be made. Um, you know, and I don't know I don't know what John Favreau's plans are with his TV show that he's doing. I remember there was talk a while back of, you know, Lucas had had commissioned like 30 scripts for a live action Star Wars show that I'll never see the light of day. Um, you know, there was a show at some point, maybe this was it about the sort of underworld of Star Wars, which is kind of fascinating given how much crime, how much sort of black market, illicit mob run crime happens in a galaxy far, far away. But yeah, like of, of all the stuff of my childhood that I could probably find a way into and be thrilled to get the opportunity, Star Wars is probably high on that list. Nice. Um, so Next, seemingly random question. There's a common joke or like this in joke that Kevin Smith always cries a lot. How often <laughs> have you seen Kevin Smith cry? Um, you know, not as often as I think you'd think. Um, it, you know, I could count them on one hand. I could count them on one hand the number of times I've seen him cry. Um, you know, because I think he watches most of his TV by himself. And all was was this during the podcast or? Yeah. You know, like we'll, you know, we'll get into some unplanned territory and talk about a thing and, you know, maybe we'll have a guest on who's, who's, you know, revealing, you know, real hidden secret or I remember having Paul Dini on and he was talking about, you know, sort of his experience that led him to write um, The Dark Knight, the graphic novel he wrote about, you know, sort of his violent attack and his recovery from it and the things Batman meant to him and the ways that Batman was crucial to his own sort of rehabilitation. You know, I remember we were both a little bit teary in that uh, in that room. I mean, when we talked about um, Prince's passing, we were both a little bit teary. Right. If you had to choose it one writer to have a drink with, who would you choose? Uh, living or dead? Yeah. Either or. I'm going to stick with living. Uh, so, you know, if you put a thing out in the world, maybe it'll come back to you. True. Um, 
let's see, a writer, a living writer that living I would writer. love to have a drink. Could it be somebody that I've already had a drink with? <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's kind of interesting. Um, I think uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Okay. Heard it here. I why, think, why is that? I think so. um, because there was something, A, I mean, he's friggin' brilliant, um, like off the charts, bananas brilliant. But there's there are enough commonalities between us you know, we both we both grew up in in New York City. We both um, we both have parents who are immigrants. We both love hip hop. We both love nerd stuff. He just happens to have a Pulitzer Prize, and I just happened to not have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> that, that evens things out. It really makes a nice balance. Yeah, for, it really for does. A drink. You don't yeah. want to be talking to a mirror across the table. Like there's got to be some differences. Um, but uh, but yeah, I did. I got to interview him for the LA Times. You know, I had lunch with him for that interview, and it was fantastic and phenomenal and wonderful. Um, so I just want to do it again. Awesome. Um, so, second to last question: Tell us something about you or your work that nobody knows about. Hmm. Something that about me or my work that nobody knows about. A question that you've think. always wanted someone to ask on a podcast, or but no one's ever thought to ask, or or one thing. I know it's funny. I've I've asked other people that question before in interviews. It's a, um, it can be a stumper. It can be tough. It can be a bit of a stumper. Um, a thing that nobody knows about me or my work. Um, I will say that most of my, at least especially with comic book, most of my comic book structure is stolen from rock songs. Really, that's interesting. Because there's something especially about like. I remember at one point I had read Warren Ellis had given this quote that like single issues of comic books are like singles and graphic novels are like albums. And so the idea that you could structure a comic book like it's a rock song, like it's a pop song, like it's a, you know, verse, chorus, like verse, verse, chorus, and then verse, chorus, and then bridge, something totally different, and then you kill it with the chorus at the end you know, hopefully leading into the next song on the album. Right. You know, like if, if there's just a way to rhythmically balance, like, you know, dialogue, action, dialogue, action, crazy left turn, and then more of the juice of the episode, probably, or, or issue, like probably action. But yeah, because you want to leave somebody in, in serial fiction wanting more. But just that level of like rhythm and pace and changes and harmony within it and thematic unity. You know, it's the kind of thing that if you find a really great rock song, you know, and a really great single issue of a comic book, there will be some similarities there. So, how's that? Yeah, no, I that's great. I thought you were going to be stumped, and that that's just like that's a gem right there. <laughs> awesome. And like I said, last question. Let's bring it back to Fat Man on Batman, the the Han Solo. Well, I guess it's called Solo uh, movie episode. You guys are talking about a particular scene in which Han Solo is given his last name by an Imperial officer. Um, and, it, you know, there was some joking and commentary on how that maybe wasn't the best way to tell it. From a writer, could you, off the top, or think of a way to maybe better come up with a scene like that? Or how would you have done it? You know, I mean, it feels as if just Solo's not going to be his last name, which is a perfectly legitimate way to do that. Like, right. what's your name? My name is Han Solo. Okay, great. <laughs> like, maybe we don't need to put any story weight on the fact that he doesn't have a last name. But if you're going to do it, then either somebody we already know and care about has to give him his last name, 
or he has to decide to abandon his earlier last name and choose it himself. You know, so it's either like, you know, my name is Hans Gruber, and but I can't go by Gruber anymore. So what's your name, kid? All right. by myself. I need a name, Han Solo. Right. Great. Awesome. He's decided that this is who he's going to be. He's made his first decision in his new life as, you know, intergalactic rogue and scoundrel. And it's to to adopt a new name that's not his old one, as opposed to random extra who's got a speaking <laughs> line that we have never seen before and will never see again, gives him the most, the second most famous name in the galaxy. <laughs> that's not true, because there, there will someday be a Star Wars story about that guy for sure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I know. But yeah, no, that was that that was a gem. Nice. So that being said, now that we're done with those seemingly random questions, what's next for you? Obviously, you've got Castle Rock coming out. What's the long, long term? What's your like? Do you have an end game, or you? What's your? I mean, you've already done so much. Well, you know, it's been an interesting ride, but I also decided, in standard classic midlife crisis uh, pattern, to drastically change my life in the middle of it. You know, and to abandon a journalism career to take a stab at being a TV writer um, at, you know, 44 years old, you know, might not have been the wisest of choices, but I'm sticking with it. So it's building this second career to something that can sustain me and my family and itself. Um, So the plan in as much as there is ever one is to keep working, you know, is to keep writing, is to keep um, hoodwinking and tricking people into paying me to do it. (laughs) And, uh, Which you've done and so far. I've, I've done a halfway decent job at it so far. <laughs> but momentum is everything um, in as much as, you know, the thing you can control is the work that you do. But whether anybody's willing to look at it is out of your hands. And, uh, you know, for me, I think that the secret sauce to that is momentum, is, you know, building quickly, rapidly on one thing to the next thing to the next thing. So in this whole pursuit and dream of continuing to do television, um, it's all about the next thing. So, and fingers crossed there are some good next things on the horizon. Yeah, I can imagine. So awesome, man. Well, we're excited to see uh, what that next thing is, but until then, uh, I guess we'll let you go, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I hope you had fun. We had fun. No, this was a great chat guys. I Uh, appreciate it. Awesome, man. I hope we got you at the very least warmed up for that fat man on Batman uh, podcast you're going to right now. I'm feeling limber. I'm feeling <laughs> that, that's all we want. So we want, I think today <laughs> the audience is just going to be like, wait, there's something a little different about Mark today. He, he, oh, he, okay, cool. He had that podcast before. There he it is. He loosened up a bit. Exactly. Cool, man. All right. Well, uh, thanks again for being on the show. Um, and thank you listeners for tuning in. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the writer experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.